Streaming audio is made possible by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and grocery staples to your door. Every delivery allows you to support local donations that fight hunger in the community. Learn more at HungryHarvest.net. This episode is brought to you by Washington, D.C.'s Taffety Punk Theater Company, who are releasing Beauty Pill's Sorry You're Here, the soundtrack album for the play Suicide Chat Room. Blending orchestration and electronica, the music reflects the themes of the play, technology and loneliness and longing. with the 10th anniversary remounting of the play, Sorry You're Here is available for the first time in a limited edition color vinyl with graphic design by Nora McKelvey. Pre-order yours now at taffetypunk.bandcamp.com. that piece in particular just blew me away it was just one of those things that like I hadn't heard anything for so long that that just made me kind of obsessed about something this is essential tremors I'm Lee Gardner I'm Matt Byers The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Breakthrough 2009 Warp Records release, Ambivalence Avenue, Stephen James Wilkinson, better known as Bibio, has released six albums of delicate, moody folk imbued with deft electronic touches. Fragile, wistful, and often brief, his reverie-inducing songs serve as distillations of pure nostalgia. Wilkinson spoke to us from his home in the West Midlands of England, which also serves as his studio. The 
The first song Wilkinson chose as being formative for him was Steve Reich's Electric Counterpoint. first one is Steve Reich and it's um, Electric Counterpoint, particularly the third movement. Um, so to kind of describe, explain why this was a key turning point, I, oh, I'm by the way, I'm choosing these tracks because how they've affected me as a guitarist. So that's the kind of theme um, between the three tracks. So I started playing guitar when I was about 11, I think. So probably around 1990. Uh, is that right? Yeah, sometime around then. And I grew up on rock and metal and self-taught. Someone showed me a few starting points. And then I listened to albums, mostly stuff like Iron Maiden, ACDC and various other things. And I would sit there and I'd try and work out various riffs of songs that I liked and that's how I learned guitar and this was my main interest musically for quite a while for a good five years or so and I didn't have really much interest in electronic music and then come mid-90s I started to show an interest in electronic music and when I around that time I left school 1995 and got into skateboarding and, and met a few people that um got me into new music. Some of them had older brothers at university who discovered interesting things and that kind of relayed back to me. So um, around that time, I was really getting into electronic music. And during that sort of mid to late 90s period, I was more interested in electronic music than rock music. I'd sort of kind of got that out of my system to a degree, but I still considered myself a guitarist. It was still, you know, um, my main instrument. But I was sort of getting, it started to feel a bit stale as an instrument. It started to feel, uh, a lot of what I learned was sort of rooted in uh, blues and rock cliches. And it I kind of started to get more of an interest in getting into electronic music, which was um, difficult because at the time it wasn't like you could just download some software and do it for, for peanuts, you know, when your parents' PC or whatever. It was, it required having some budget to get some equipment. And um, 
around, I think it was 1998. Yeah, I was doing a, an art, I was uh, studying art. I think I was about uh, 19, 20 at the time. Yeah, it's my 20th birthday. I had a, a little sampler, which was a really basic little thing. It was, um, I, I still use it to this day, but it's it's quite low-fi. It's got a low sampling rate. Um, and you can only have four samples playing at the same time. So it was really limited to what you could do. But at the time it was, it was mind blowing for me to have this box where I could press buttons and sounds came out of them. I mean, obviously that seems like not much of a novelty now, but at the time it was, it was, uh, it was a huge leap for me. And one day when I was, um, waiting to get the train to go to Stafford where I was studying, I was uh, listening to an orbital track. I can't remember which one, but something with a 4-4 kind of techno beat in it. And I was on the platform and a train went past and there was a like a lantern or a light or something on the back of the train that was flashing. And it was in time with the track that I was listening to. So it kind of got my attention and I was just mesmerized by it for a bit. Um, but then obviously it wasn't perfectly in time, so it started to drift and go out of time and then it got to the point where it was completely out of time then it came back in again so at the time when i was studying studying art i was quite interested in doing things like installations and kind of conceptual things stuff like that so i went to college and i thought i want to do something with this idea of things going in and out of sync bear in mind i hadn't heard steve rush by this point so i uh approached my one of my tutors who's a uh, a big music fan and had you know had some quite eclectic tastes and i told him this idea that i had and that i wanted to explore it as a concept of things being in sync and then going out of sync and he said to me have you heard of steve reich and i said no um and he told me about uh the phase you know the phase music that steve reich did in the early days the tape loops and also pendulum music, things like that. So he then did me a mixtape, which was literally a cassette. And I think it was like the following day or whatever. He came uh, came back into college, gave me this mixtape, and it was just full of minimalist stuff. It had Philip Glass on there. It had Terry Ride on there and Steve Reich, Electric Counterpoint was one of the things on there. And that piece in particular, Steve Reich, Electric Counterpoint, and particularly the third movement, just blew me away it was just one of those things that like I hadn't heard anything for so long that that just made me kind of obsessed about something and I think it was you know partly because at the time I was so into electronic music and I was interested in sequencing and doing more sort of um abstracts not really the right word because it's not like music is a you know representational but something that was more I wanted to approach music in a more sort of uh, graphical way, perhaps like using a sequencer, but I didn't have that kind of equipment. And when I, when I heard Electric Counterpoint, it was almost as if it was composed, you know, it was composed with guitars and bass guitars, but it was almost like it was, to my young ears, like it was composed as electronic music is composed, like as a kind of linear, lots of layers and, you know, obviously Counterpoint. So it sort of appealed to that to that side of me appealed to that desire to make um layered electronic music that was um 
lots of overlapping patterns and things like that, the kind of things I hear in electronic music. But the fact that it was based in guitar made me think, ah, this is something that I could possibly do on a much, you know, uh, more naive kind of level. But so because I had this little sampler at the time, which was, um, again, it was really limited and, and I didn't have any, I didn't have any good microphones or anything like that. I just had this little sampler and a cheap plastic kind of microphone you get with a karaoke machine. And, you know, I proceeded to uh, experiment and record short little loops. And the thing that really captured me was the, the way that he sort of displaces patterns, you know, which kind of came from the phase music era, um, having the same pattern or the, the very similar pattern working as a, I think it's a canon, you know, where it's, it's like almost like an echo of itself uh, and playing around with the displacement of that and seeing what other patterns you get. So that's literally what I ended up doing. I would record riffs. Um, the, the sampler had really limited sampling times. So I had to record short riffs and then I'd loop them and then I'd trigger them at different points. So they would sort of uh, create counterpoint or canon. Um, and that, that was really the start of something that went on to become a key sort of component of my music. Um, and what's interesting with it is, even though I still had this desire to do something more elaborate than what this sampler could achieve, or what I could achieve with this sampler, I wanted to do something more like what Steve Reich, you know, did with Electric Counterpoint, but I was sort of limited with the gear I had. Um, but that limitation became part of the sound and particularly you know because i was with this sampler as well i'd record um i'd record these pieces and it you know it had no storage on there you could switch it off and the, the samples would still be stored in the memory but you couldn't back them up to anything you couldn't drag them onto a usb stick or anything like that so i used to just mix them down to cassette at the time so you got this combination of um these crude uh, sort of counterpoint things that were, you know, came off the back of discovering Steve Reich's electric counterpoint, um, but mix with, you know, mix on a little lo-fi sampler, low-grade digital recording quality, and then uh, captured with a cheap microphone, and, and then the whole thing mixed to cassette. That's how I kind of invented the the uh, the early Bibio sound. Um, so it was kind of half intentional and half just a case of. Um, well, this is what I can do at the time. But but then I remember he, listening to it back and thinking, there's something in this, you know, there's something in this um, sound, even though I was trying to achieve something else. Um, but I wouldn't have discovered it without uh, without hearing that electric counterpoint. So in some ways, I owe quite a lot to my, my tutor who, uh, who did me that mixtape. The second song Wilkinson chose as being essential to him was Nick Drake's From the Morning. Day one storm And it was beautiful 
one I can't actually with the, with, the, with the last two I can't remember which order these came in but I'm just going to start with um, um, Nick Drake um, and probably the one that the, the track I think was the, the key was uh, From the Morning which is the I think it's the last track on Pink Moon the album Pink Moon um, <clears throat> this was a few years after I discovered Steve, Steve Reich so Steve Reich was, was when I was at college so that was 98, 99, and then I went to university in London, studied sonic arts. And again, I was still very much into electronic music and I was into experimental sound and all this kind of stuff. And, and during, during the kind of university type, during my um, studying hours at the campus, it was very much about sound. It was quite an anti-musical course in some ways, but that didn't, that didn't bother me because my, my love for music was still that wasn't going to get in the way of anything. So during the day, I'd be making experimental noise with uh, programming software that, you know, you'd literally type code to create sounds and stuff like that. And then at at night, you know, in the evening, I'd go home and pick up an acoustic guitar and do my own thing as well. So there was this almost duality to what I was doing at the time. And I think it was maybe 2001, 2002, um, in the, the, as I was coming to the end of the course and possibly after I finished, cause I remained in London for another year, there was a guy living with me who was into, um, well, I was into lots of music really, but he, he was the guy that got me into Nick Drake, um, particularly that album. And I remember hearing, hearing that, that track in particular from the morning and even though the sort of finger picking style was something that was familiar you know, like a sort of quite a traditional, almost ragtime sort of picking style. The the harmonic side of it, the the melodic and the the, the chords, if you like, just sounded really modern to my ears. They sounded that they had a, a place in, you know, what I would consider to be more modern melodies, sort of quite far away from the cliches of the 70s and, and the sort of blues influence and all that. It seemed quite, I don't know, just refreshing. So that that made me want to learn how to play some of the some of those pieces, particularly that one, which meant that I had to uh, basically get my chops at playing finger picking. That was I think that was one of the key key tracks that made me uh, sit down and practice finger picking styles. But also another key thing, and this is still relevant to my even with my latest work, is the the tuning that he would use one of the tunings that he would use of the guitar. Uh, I think on that album, there probably isn't much that uses standard tuning. There's a particular tuning that he uses that I'd always refer to as Nick Drake tuning. Um, and, you know, once you, that, that opened up um, avenues for me because the tuning itself, it was, as soon as you tune the guitar differently, you find that you can't just fall into old habits. If you try to play, you know, you fall into those old habits and you play all the things that you usually play. And when you pick up a guitar, they sound either wrong or they sound completely different because the guitar's tuned differently. So the the combination of learning uh, a new discipline, which was finger picking and 
experimenting with different tunings was uh was really influential and I went on to use that that particular tuning um on probably most of my albums and t- and and still using it today on the on the current albums quite a few tracks that use that tuning so I think to people who are f- familiar with Nick Drake they can probably hear it I mean not just the obvious the obvious influence but the actual signature tuning that he used um I don't know many people that have used that tuning I'm sure I don't know whether he where he got it from if he invented it or he got it from someone else but um I hear I kind of hear Nick Drake even you just strum it and open the open strings it just sounds like Nick Drake so yeah that was um that was really uh, a turning point I think final song Wilkinson shows as being crucial to him was Zhao Gilberto's Aguas de Marco. around the same time as when I discovered Nick Drake, maybe a little bit later, and this became a new obsession at the time, and that was Joe Gilberto's uh, so-called White Album, his self-titled album from 1973. And I'm going to go with the first track, because which is Agus de Marsa. Um, that, because that was the first one that I tried to learn, well, I did learn. And that was that was like one of these milestones in my guitar, um, in learning guitar, because, again, you know, like I said, I'm a self-taught guitarist. I don't sight read. I can't sight read music. So uh, I, ha- I can use tab. Um, and if I, you know, really needed to use uh, sheet music, I, I could sit down with it and work it out slowly. But... Um, with in the case of Giorgio Berto, it was uh, I really wanted to learn these, the, learn these songs. Uh, it was a friend of mine who I met at university who got me into Giorgio Berto, and, and it was a sound that I already I already knew because obviously songs like uh, "Girl from Ipanema" are really famous. I remember seeing a documentary about that song many years ago, and it really back in the back in the mid uh, mid nineties, yeah. And I fell in love with the sound, but didn't really pay attention. It was on TV at the time. I didn't pay attention to who was who and what was what. And it kind of just slipped my radar. And this was all pre-internet, so I couldn't kind of search for it. Um, so, yeah, a friend of mine put me on to Jojo Berto and he, and he, he uh, gave me a copy of the, the White Album. And I just fell in love with it instantly because that album in particular is it's very stripped back. Um it's guitar and what I think is hi-hat with brushes. 
because at first I thought it was a shaker, but there's like this really soft sort of gentle high pitched percussion in the background. I think it's a hi hat, but I may be wrong. And yeah, just guitar and voice. And the thing that the thing that that's I suppose the the rhythm of bossa nova is really addictive, um, because it's a really gentle style of music, but it still makes you want to move, which is you know without any kind of hard percussion or anything like that, no bass line. Um, but the thing that really gets me is the richness of the harmony in the chords and Giorgioberto in particular um, is one of these guitarists who um, is a bit of a genius at reharmonizing things and, and coming up with variations and really subtle variations on, on chord progressions. And if you listen to some of the songs that he's recorded over the years since the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, Every time he did a new version, it was kind of slightly more evolved, but it was always in a subtle way. Um, so, yeah, I, I decided I wanted to learn some of these uh, tracks, and Agus de Massa was the first one that I um, sat down and learned. And I found I found tab online and chord sheets and stuff like that, and I would um, realize that these songs were just full of chords that I'd never heard of and... Um, yeah, I mean, at the time, I learned so many new chords because of this album. And I could even remember the names of them at the time, but I can't remember now. But yeah, all these kind of shapes that I'd yeah, never heard of and quite dense chords with um, dissonance and all sorts. And when you learn when you learn someone else's music that's sort of a, that previously was above your sort of level, it's quite amazing to you know to to witness it you know as you're playing it as you're working it out because it's like you're kind of seeing how a magic trick is done because when you hear it beforehand you just hear it on a surface level and it has this sort of illusion that you just think I don't know how that's done so then when you find the find the means to to learn how to do it yourself it's like you're learning how to do this magic trick and that's that's quite special um so yeah i i i learned that song and i even the, the lyrics are actually printed. The Portuguese lyrics are printed in the in the sleeve. So the next step was I learnt those as well. But obviously, I couldn't read. I couldn't understand Portuguese. So I just learnt them phonetically and listened really carefully to how he pronounced them. Um, and it was quite a challenge at the time. I didn't know whether it was whether I was going to be able to do it. But I, when I did pull it off, although my pronunciation was probably terrible at first. Um, I went on to learn other songs off the album. But then what happened was that that was sort of like, um, that had really improved my chord vocabulary, if you like, um, even though I couldn't necessarily remember the names of all these chords. Just the fact that I became aware of certain shapes and the sequences of certain chord shapes and how they could be used. And um, a lot of chords that have four notes uh, four notes in them and you'd sort of pluck all of the all four strings uh, you know simultaneously as opposed to strumming um so yeah that that was that was quite a milestone and I was really obsessed with that album in particular at the time and it you know I I was getting more into Brazilian music around the time but that that was the one that um that actually kind of filtered through into what I what I did later on I think the the most obvious um track of mine that's uh, an influence is a track off my second album Handcraft called Eberiu which is 
kind of sort of a bossa nova pattern that uses some chords, some kind of chords that I learned from that um, from the album. But but what happened was really is the the combination of going back to Steve Rice, the, the layering of of melodies, the lay and, and displacing them against each other. Sometimes using a sampler, sometimes just playing the parts live, but effectively creating layering loops. Combine that with the finger picking that I got from Nick Drake, and then the kind of rich jazz chords, if you like, from Joe Gilberto, and that that all started to to kind of merge together into one. So yeah, that was that's why I picked those three tracks because I think there were lots of influences on my music, but they. I think those are the ones that probably, certainly as a guitarist, the ones that um, I wouldn't sound the way I do today if I didn't, if I didn't uh, discover those those pieces. has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.